you take the word of John and turn it to you, Mark chapter number 14, Mark 14, morning. We'll simply pick up where we left off last week in the book of Mark. We're going to pick up our reading this morning in verse number 10. If we will stand for the reading of God's word out of reverence for it. We'll take our reading up to verse number 21. Uh, Mark, according to the Spirit of God, inspired, writes these words. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare, that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you, carrying a picture of water, follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where is the guest room in which I may eat, eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared, there make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. In the evening he came with the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him, One by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? He answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. Son of man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Right. Father, again, we just thank you for the privilege it is to breathe this side of eternity. Uh, we thank you for strength in our bodies. We know this morning that many don't. Uh, many are sick and ailing and I'm wondering if they'll make it to another day, Lord. Father, we thank you just for this opportunity one more time to take the word and to break the bread of life. Father, I pray that it's meaningful to us. I pray that our hearts and minds are ready to receive your word, whatever it may be. Father, because we understand that it's eternally rich. Father, that it's valuable beyond measure. Um, that we could hold in our hands the wealth of the greatest men throughout the ages. Father, and if we have the truth of God, um, take root in our hearts for infinity more. The Lord will be love your word greater than silver or gold this morning. Father, may it be sweet like honey to the lips, and even as hard as it may be sometimes to hear. And Father, may we understand that it's for our good and for the Lord. Father, if it's a warning we need this morning, would you warn us? Father, if it's an encouragement this morning, maybe, would you encourage us? Um, Father, um, whatever, you do many things with your word, um, but we pray this morning that um, something would be accomplished, that we would not walk away unchanged. So, um, Lord, we leave this in your hands, because we know it's not a work that we can accomplish, and we trust you with it, Father. So take your word this morning, and use the uh, messenger. Help him to be faithful. Give him the glory, Father. Set him aside. And we'll trust you. And 
time that we have. We commend this time to you now, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Thank you. Thank you. As I said, if you're visiting with us, or by chance you're listening online for the first time, we come to the book of Mark simply because this has been our task for some time. We're taking the book of Mark as a, as a complete whole and sought to just consecutively preach through it verse by verse. And take it text by text, passage by passage, paragraph by paragraph, story by story, to learn more of our, uh, particularly of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and what He came to do, what He did, and what He came to accomplish on behalf of sinners like us. And it's been a blessing to me particularly, and I hope and pray that it's been a blessing to you, that it's encouraged your heart, that it's strengthened your soul, that um, as a result of it, you're you are made more like Him. One of the issues with expositional consecutive preaching, and what I mean by that is just taking the, the Bible verse by verse and seeking to expose the meaning of the text and simply preach the meaning of the text, is that sometimes you come to texts that you don't really want to preach, <laughs> or you don't want to uh, spend a great deal of time on, or it's not quite as pleasurable um, as others. This morning we come to a text like that in my own heart. Um, we deal with a man that um, is a difficult man to deal with, but at the same time, maybe he's difficult to deal with because we're a lot like him. Um, yeah. But maybe we're more like him than what we think. And that if we're not careful, if we don't um, continue on with what I'm going to encourage us, exhort us, warn us, push us forward to this morning, um, that maybe we'll find ourselves not in ways like him, but exactly like him. And that may be a difficult thing for you to grasp this morning, because you see him in somewhat of a vacuum as, as this man who is worse than all other men. But at the same time, we have to realize that he's made up of the same stuff, and without... Um, God's grace and restraint upon our lives, it's very uh, it's very likely that we could become a man just like him. Um, the man that I'm speaking of is a man by the name of Judas, Judas Iscariot. Um, we meet him in verse number 10 where it says, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. Just to remind you of last week's text, um, it was a text upon which this text, of course, is born, it grows out of. Judas Iscariot doesn't uh, operate in a vacuum, but he deals with the Christ and the disciples in such a way that this is birthed in him because of the greed of his heart. You'll remember that there was a woman, an unnamed woman in the book of Mark, and who came forth with worship in her heart, and it extended to worship in her hands. Now she broke an alabaster box of oil that was worth a year's wages, and Judas immediately steps up with, with no doubt bitterness and anger in his heart because he's a greedy man, um, arguing that it should be used for ministry in some other fashion, that this was, quote, a waste. Um, the disciples follow quickly after him, agreeing with him. And, and, and Judas there is used um, by the devil himself to taint the hearts of even the disciples, um, who may have had a righteous indignation, but nevertheless they were wrong. Um, Jesus defends this unnamed woman um, as a, and defends her pure act of devotion and states that it was a worthy sacrifice to be made on his behalf um, because the poor would be with him always, but he wouldn't. 
And what she does is she does a unique, um, a unique sacrifice there of, of, of self-denial, um, giving all that she had, giving what she had um, to anoint our Lord for His burial. And she doesn't probably fully understand that, but our Lord does. Um, and He receives the gift. And He states that it's going to be such a gift and uh, that, that the world will know throughout the ages that that story will be told. And, and 2,000 years removed, we're still talking about it. Um, that, that simple act of pure worship and devotion. But it's that very act of worship and devotion that provokes and evokes a response by this man named Judas, one of, of the twelve, um, that will set him on a path that will conclude in the betrayal of our Lord and Savior and um, culminate in his, in his death. Um, I came across a hymn this week that reminded me of him. You read these words written by an author in the 1800s. He writes, There's a time we know not when, a point we know not where, that marks the destiny of men to glory or despair. There is a line by us unseen that crosses every path, a hidden boundary between God's patience and His wrath. To pass the limit is to die, to die as if by stealth. It, it, it does not quench the beaming eye, nor fade the glow of health. The conscience may be still at ease, the spirit life and gay. That which is pleasing still may please, and care be thrust away. But on the forehead God has set indelibly a mark, and seen by man, for man as yet is blind and in the dark. And yet the doomed man's path below, like Eden, may have bloomed. He did not, does not, will not know, nor feel that he is doomed. He thinks or feels that all is well, and every fear is calm. He lives, he dies, he wakes in hell, not only doomed, but damned. Oh, where is this mysterious born by which our path is crossed, beyond which God himself has sworn that he who goes is lost? How far may we go on in sin? How long will God forbear? Where does hope end and where begin the confines of despair? An answer from the skies is sent. Ye that from God depart, while it is called today, repent, repent, and harden not your heart. But there is a line which is drawn for every man, in which there is no return. Ultimately, that culminates in death, but oftentimes there's a line before in which a man crosses, a woman crosses, maybe a child crosses, in which sin consumes them to, to such, a, to such a, an extent that it is almost as if there is a point of no return. And that's who we read about today. A man by the name of Judas Iscariot, verse number 10, tells us, but really, it's Judah Iscariot. His name is not Judah. And I understand that in a sense it is, but it's an anglicized form that is given in most Bibles uniquely to this man because of the role that he played in Christ's death. Throughout the Gospels, the apostles don't want you to be mistaken as to this man and the nature of this man. He has named himself by his sin, entitled himself, and will always be remembered by the title of his and the nature of his sin. So that even the writers immediately identify this man prior to his 
great sin of betraying our Lord that often you'll see him titled, um, as he's mentioned, Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. To the translated word, translator wanted you to know so that they would not, so that you would not, and I would not, um, confuse this Judah with the other Judas of Scripture. Thus, it's often translated, even in our English Bibles, as Judas, as not to confuse him. But his parents were not all that creative, like many American parents are today, with new renditions and spellings of classic names or new names altogether. The Hebrews were often uh, very intentional about their names. They meant something to them. They would think of family. They would think of heritage. They would think of God. They would think of His Word. And they would name their children um, in, in, in accordance with that because those are the hopes that they had for their children. That they would be like the patriarchs at old. That they would be like the women of old that followed God. That they would be, uh, they would grow up and be something that would be remembered throughout the ages, not for himself, but for his devotion and his faithfulness to God. And, um, and that, that Judas was no different. It seems that he grew up in a Jewish home and his mother and his father very likely had a love for God. And at the very least, they held fast to the Hebrew religion such that they respected God, they respected Judaism, they respected um, the patriarchs, and they named their child Judah. Judah is a beautiful name, which literally means praise. He was named after one of um, the great men of, of old, men in his stead. Um, but this man would not live up to his name. Thus he would receive in some sense a new name. A name in which no other name, man or woman or child, unless they're uh, just extremely sadistic, would name their child Judas. Judah retains its virtue. Judas, on the other hand, um, retains its vitriol. It would be akin to naming your child um, Hitler. It would be akin to naming your child um, Benedict Arnold. Um, someone remembered for such a tragedy, not just a tragedy, but an intentional, um, an intentional crime. What happens? Um, we meet Judas Iscariot again, um, provoked in his heart, embittered by um, the greed of his own soul, um, such that it provokes him to gather together with the chief priests in verse number 10 to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad, speaking of the chief priest, and promised to give him money so that he sought how he might conveniently um, betray him. Luke chapter 22 um, also is a commentary upon this very uh, passage of Scripture. And it says that at this moment is when Satan enters into Judas. Um, there's a lot of speculation as to what that means. It could just simply mean that he's controlled by uh, demonic influence. It could mean that he's possessed. We're not going to spend a great deal of time arguing one way or the other because we don't inherently have um, the information. Uh, but one commentator writes, he, he says, to go on to ask whether Satan took bodily possession is frivolous speculation. It's better to consider how monstrous it is that men created in the image of God and destined to be the temple of the Spirit should be changed not merely into foul stables of drains, but actually into cursed abode of, of Satan. Um, that, that, that Satan in some way takes control of this man, either by him yielding his appetites to uh, demonic influence or um, by literally being controlled by, by the devil himself, that, such that he begins a collaboration with these men who would scheme against our Lord and Savior so that would culminate in his death. You'll remember that in verse number 1, these men are already hating Jesus. 
They're already seeking after his death, but they're afraid um, that, that during the Passover, during the feasts, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they're afraid to, to take the life of this man because they believe that it will culminate in riots. So what they have in some sense is an answer to their desires in verse number 10 that this act of worship would provoke in Judas such a, such a desire that he would be able to, they would be able to take Jesus privately. Um, so what we see is we see um, the beginning of the end in a very real fashion that, that, that what these chief priests and Pharisees desire is now being brought to pass in the heart of Judas. That it won't have to happen openly, but now it can happen privately in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane as, as, um, as vitriol is born uh, in some way in the heart of Judas. We pick up in verse 12, and let's read the commentary on this. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into a city, and a man will meet you, carrying a picture of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared there make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them. And they prepared the Passover. And in the evening he came with the twelve. We're simply setting the stage for the crucifixion. Again, you'll remember that, um, that we're in the midst of Passover week. Um, just a couple of days our Lord will give up his life on Calvary. And we're recounting the steps in which that took. So the time of Passover is at hand. It's arrived. The Passover celebration was marked by, in some sense, by hope and excitement. I know we're thinking of our Lord's death, and we're thinking of uh, a time of just great tragedy and great trial and great grieving and great sacrifice. But this wouldn't have been the sentiment inherently in what they're about to do. Year after year, the Jewish people would gather together not merely for a memorial of what God had done, in the past, that they would gather together. And in that memorial, they would find hope and encouragement and excitement that, that, that not only what happened did happen, but, but, but what happened, something like that would once again happen again. That there was a hope in the future. That the Passover, that what happened with Moses and the Exodus and the bringing out of Israel, out of slavery, the people of God, would happen to them in time and reality, in a greater form and in a greater fashion, that he would fully and finally redeem his people. That there was probably a, a sense of hope and excitement as the Jewish people would come home, similar to um, when you would come home for Christmas or, or there would be a homecoming within a church, these people um, whom you knew and whom you loved and would come home and there would be a, a reminder of something. But it would also not be a, only a reminder of something, but a hope in something. That this was the Passover, the original Passover, the Exodus out of Egypt was simply a foretaste of the glory that would be to come, the divine blessing, that they would look at that and they would see a pattern of what God had done. And they would, they would they look for that pattern in the future. And this is what they're about to celebrate. This is what they're preparing for. And thus our Lord gives them instruction to prepare. It seems that the disciples simply assumed that they'll partake of the Passover meal with Christ. And it could be simply that, that for the, the, the decades that they've been alive, year after year, um, that they're looking forward to the next year. But this could also be the third 
at least the second, if not the third Passover that they will take with their Lord. Now this would have been something that would have went on his entire ministry. Our Lord uh, obeyed the law in all points. And thus he would have partaken of Passover uh, since the time he could have taken Passover. Throughout his ministry he would have partaken of Passover. Um, he would have enjoyed the feast. He would have uh, he would have partook of the fellowship and the and the and the excitement and the hope of the redemption that was to come. But this possibly wasn't their first Passover together, but it would be their last Passover together. But at the same time, the, the disciples wouldn't have understood it that way necessarily because they didn't even believe that he was going to die in a couple of days. So, uh, what's about to happen? It seems that they're clueless. It seems that they don't understand the full gravity and the weight of this Passover. Um, thus our Lord gives instructions for them to go. It wouldn't have been the first time that they had done this, but it would be in some sense um, unique. He tells them to go into a city. Again, they're outside of the city. They're outside of in a, in a town called Bethany. Um, and the law, the Jewish tradition would have, would have stipulated that they must do it with inside the city, inside the gates. Otherwise, they would have um, broken the tradition. And he gives them kind of some unique commands. He tells them that you'll see a, a man carrying a jar, a jar of water, carrying a picture. And he says, follow him. And it may not seem that strange, but, but that's actually unique. Um, generally, when men carried uh, pictures of water, it wouldn't have been in a picture. It would have been in wineskins. Um, the ladies generally carried it in pictures or jars of water. So this would have been a unique occurrence. So they would have seen as they walked in, they would have been looking for not something just average, but something to, to uniquely identify um, who they were to follow and where they were to go. Um, and that's exactly what happened. And then he will show you, follow him, and then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared um, there make uh, ready for us. That it would already be prepared. They were simply to follow the instruction of the Lord. Um, obviously, this was somewhat of a friend of Christ or a friend of the ministry that had already prepared. Uh, or it could have just been simply something supernatural. Um, it's the work of Christ that he, he did in the heart of someone uh, who was a follower of Christ. That without knowing, just like the disciples are going, without knowing where they're going, it very well could have been that, that our Lord put in the heart of this man or this homeowner um, a desire or or something to, for him to prepare the pa Passover, not knowing exactly what was going to happen. Um, regardless, our Lord with supernatural knowledge knows of future events and he directs his disciples to the place in which they would um, take Passover. And again, there, there may be an excitement, a hope in their hearts. Um, there may just be kind of a mundane activity um, as this is something that they've always done. But we're not 100% sure. It could be that the supernatural knowledge is simply to, um, to say, look, I'm divine, I'm God, follow me. Um, it could also be that our Lord desired to keep it secret um, simply because He knew that the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees were after Him. That He needed one more night with His, with his disciples. And had they known, and maybe He didn't even tell the disciples, and because he knew that one of the twelve was the devil and would give up his position. You'll read in John chapter 13 through 16 just a long exposition of this night. Of sermon after sermon, of, war, of warning after warning, of word after word, of encouragement after encouragement. And our Lord desired um, to be with them. And you'll read all about that in the upper room. 
I mean, it very well may be that he gives supernatural knowledge to his disciples for the purpose of guarding against uh, being taken too early because his hour had not yet come. But it could also be to guard against um, the devil that's in the room. Uh, one commentator says, It seems obvious that Jesus used this method of keeping Judas from learning where the Passover was uh, to be observed in order that he could not report it to the chief priest. His hour had not yet come. Judas could not yet do his deed. And then we read in verse 17 that in the evening he came with the twelve. When the early evening came, it was customary to eat the Passover in the evening, um, even on into the, the morning. And again, I, I don't just want to be a commentator or just drop data upon you. I would love for you, as well as myself, to put ourselves in the text in some sense. To get the the environment, to understand the nature of it, to, to kind of put yourself there. You can imagine the atmosphere uh, and what it was like together at the Passover. You can imagine what, maybe not what the disciples are going through, but maybe the hope and the excitement that's there. And if nothing else, the fact that they're clueless. But there's two men in the room that know exactly what's about to happen. Jesus Christ and Jesus. You can imagine as they're carrying along and going there. Judas along with the twelve. Christ is over here. The other eleven are in the middle, clueless of everything that's going to happen. They understand what the job is. They understand where they're going. They understand what they're about to celebrate. But maybe there's a, a, a solemn nature to Christ. And you'll read some words here in just a few moments that he's really taken back by Judas in his humanity. There's a sorrow that overwhelms him. There's a trouble that overtakes him as he begins to identify the one who would betray him. And you can imagine what's going through Judas's mind as he carries on like everything's normal. He carries on like nothing's wrong. And he just drops in line with the twelve in whatever fashion that he was. Such to the point that you're going to see in just a moment that nobody expects him. You find that he engages in the activity just like normal. It says there that they sat and they ate. Um, another portion of Scripture says they reclined. They were fellowshipping together. Um, they were eating with one another. They were celebrating the Passover, that great um, redemption out of Egypt, that great act of uh, being taken out of slavery, that great act of salvation and deliverance that would be uh, commemorated for ages to come and remembered even to this day. And Judas would carry on like home. They were reclining and eating. Um, it seems as if the night was going according to plan. John 13, 21 says that. Um, in the middle of it. Again, just uh, an act of festivity of a meal um, was an act of intimacy in those days. I know that we don't always understand that. We don't understand that having somebody over it just seems kind of casual and, and platonic and kind of removed from one another. That you could, you could bring someone into your home and you can have a meal just to kind of sit casually and cut loose. And, and there's nothing, no strings attached in our culture. You know? We're very individualistic, but this wouldn't have been the case in those days. And it's still not that case in the Near Eastern culture that we have um, in our present age. That to have someone over for dinner, to have someone in your home, to get back and to recline is, a, is an act of intimacy. It's an act of affection. It's, a, it's, a, it's an act of relationship. We're thinking we're there to build relationship. But, but in, those, in that culture, uh, that, that, that would have been an act of an already established relationship and intimacy. But these would have been the closest of confidants. So they're sitting there, they're eating, and they're, they're partaking with one another. They're feasting, they're celebrating. 
Um, and then our Lord um, gives these words in verse number 18. And now they sat and ate. Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful. Truly, you may have it there, it says truly. That introduction brings with it some weight. The festivity, one, one, one commentator says, the festivity of the meal was shattered. When Jesus with a solemn amen that one of those, uh, or a solemn truly, a solemn amen that, that one of those sharing the intimacy of the table would betray him, the meal was shattered. Shattered with these words, the one eating with me. Mark 10, 33. Um, you may remember uh, we, as we went through it that they were told that this would happen. But what a shock still it must have been. In Mark 10, 33, you read these words, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him to the Gentiles. And they'll mock Him and scourge Him and spit on Him and kill Him. And the third day He'll rise again. It's hard enough for them to believe that. That our Lord would die. But it's somewhat ambiguous in Mark 10, 33, and as time goes on and they're set towards Jerusalem, our Lord sets His face towards him. What he begins to reveal to them is that not only will he be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes, but it's one of you. It's one who sits with me. It's one who eats with me. It's one who dips with me. Um, Psalm chapter number 41. John, in his portion, uh, literally uh, seems to um, quote Psalm chapter number 41. It's a psalm of David. In Psalm 41, 8, you read these words, An evil disease, they say, clings to him, and now that he lies down, he'll rise up no more. Even my own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up, that I may repay him. And there is a sense in which that's a messianic psalm. Our Lord takes it and he applies it to himself, but... It's also believed that that's the Psalm of David. That David there is speaking about a man who was his closest counselor. A man by the name of Ahithophel. He counseled David and was one of his closest of friends. What you begin, what you find in the Old Testament is that there was a time in which Saul came against David and Ahithophel. Um, he, he betrays David as his closest confidant and begins to go over to Absalom, uh, which is one of David's sons who has rebelled against him. And counsels Absalom against his father David. You've probably never heard of it. They've uh, rarely heard of a man by the name of Ahithophel. But Ahithophel, prior to Judas, was Judas. Um, he was the great betrayer. He was the Benedict Arnold of the Old Testament. He was the worst of the worst. He was the quintessential betrayer of all human history. But there would be a man that would rise to the task. And eclipse Ahithophel such, to such an extent that you and I, um, unless reminded of it, often forget men like Ahithophel. Verse number 19 says that they began to be sorrowful and say to him, one by one, is it I? Is it I? The term sorrowful there is not just a a, 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 a general sadness. It's an idea of deep distress. They're distraught. They're, they're rocked to the core. 
Imagine they're sitting around again. Our Lord's giving discourses. He's, he, he's talking to them. He's interchanging with them. It's been like that. Not only that year, but years previous. Day in and day out, these men have lived together. They've slept together. They've, they've ate together. They've ministered together. They've preached together. They've, 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 they've built kingdom together. They're there together. Um, and our Lord turns and directs the conversation. And He says something that none of them see coming. One of you. One of you. There's a weight to it. There's a grief. There's a sadness. There's a distress. And maybe you know some words like that. Right? Maybe not in the sense of cosmic treason that's affected the whole world. Uh, in the sense of murdering the Son of Man. The earth-shattering words that caused you to stop in your tracks. Words that you never wanted to hear. Words that you never thought you'd hear. Words that took your breath away and you didn't know what to say or what to do. That's what they're hearing. Something they never thought they'd hear. Um, and maybe not just words of tragedy, um, but words of betrayal. And one by one they come to him and they say, Lord, is it I? And another says, is it I? It's not me, is it? That's interesting, isn't it? You know, you get 12 men together um, in, a, in a career, in a workplace or whatever. You bring them in the boss. And the boss says, one of you has been skimping on the, on the money. I know that one of you is an embezzler. Um, what kind of group of men are going to look and say, wasn't me, was it? Okay. They don't say, who is it, Lord? Tell us. We need to know. Tell us who the guy is and we'll take him out back and we'll take care of him. You won't ever have to worry about that guy again. No, if it's Judas, let us know. If it's Matthew, let us know. If it's Peter, um, we've got him. If it's, if it's this person, that person, Lord, we'll take care of it. Um, no, they say, is it I? Is it me? Huh? With a solemn sobriety, maybe they remember back to the Lord's statement around the, the loaves and the fishes. Time and time again, he's dropped breadcrumbs along the way where he says, you know, that there is one of you as a devil. But now it's coming to a reality. And the, the reality is, is that, 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 that their response is not what we would typically think their response should be. The importance here is not that they looked around. But it seems like our Lord really wants us to know that they look to themselves. But somewhat of a wholesome sense of doubt and self-examination. They knew themselves enough to know that simply they could not be trusted. Maybe they could be trusted by others, but they knew themselves well enough to know that maybe they couldn't trust themselves. Matthew's Gospel tells us that Judas replies, though, but he's surely it is not me, Rabbi. The other eleven are there saying, Is it I? And Judas says, Surely it's not me, is it, Rabbi? It's not something that they've done yet, but it is something that will be done. There is a sense in which he, I believe, provokes them to a wholesome self-doubt and even mistrust to provoke them to faithfulness. I think that this is inherently a bad thing. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But Jesus answers again in kind of an interesting way. He says, One of the twelve. Who dips with me? It could be any one of you, he said. 
Anyone that's dipping with me, you know, every one of them would have dipped with him. There would have been a full participation in the sharing together of this meal. They would have all had a common bowl and a common cup that, that, that would have been passing around at different times. So, so there's no doubt that at this point, all twelve have dipped. All twelve have partaken. And he doesn't say anything to relieve any of them of their anxieties. Isn't that interesting? It's interesting their reply, but it's also interesting his reply. He doesn't remove any self-doubt. He simply allows the vicious nature of the crime to sink into their hearts and allow them to wallow in their own self-examination. Now, Jesus would have been, or if this would have been a modern evangelical talking to the twelve, uh, they would have immediately shook high stuff. Maybe we would as well. Now, Peter, it's definitely not you. James, John, you're fine. Don't worry. It would have been very, we would, uh, the, the, the modern day um, psychologists would have been very conscientious not to damage the self-worth or the egos of these men, not wanting them to doubt their, uh, their devotion to Christ at all. You know, not to doubt anything in any way because we know that doubting and self-examination are, are damaging to the psyche so that he would relieve them very quickly and say, no, 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 it's not you, it's not you. It could never be you. You would never do that. But, the, but with some sense of reality, he lays the charge upon all of them and says, it's one of you. It's one of the twelve. He doesn't pinpoint in some way. We know that this is all determined by God and that, 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 that He has laid it out in such a way that men with, uh, with, with full responsibility will carry on. Um, but, but in no way does He, that it, does he provoke an, an action of men uh, uh, to such that, that, that He makes the evil action of men. But he allows them their own freedom. Thus they retain responsibility and accountability for the actions. So he doesn't say Judas. He doesn't solidify in his mind that this is who he is and what he must do. And he does it with none of the men. He simply says it's one of the twelve. He allows them to think and meditate and wallow around in the self-examination and in self-mistrust. And you know what? Sometimes that's a healthy thing. Sometimes it'll save your life. Sometimes it's the best thing for you. In verse 21, he gives a, a, a paradox. He says, The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Isn't that just a startling statement? You know? One of the most awful things you could ever say to a man is, it seems almost like an unutterable statement. A statement you should say about no one. It'd been better if you had not been born. And we would almost say universally that that statement is unutterable and shouldn't be said. And I might say that had our Lord not said it. Because our Lord said it it must be an accurate statement. It must be a right statement. It must be an appropriate statement. But this man is the type of man that such evil dwells within his heart. And he will do such things as murder the Son of God, sell him out, betray him, be literally the hands and feet of the devil, such that our Lord could say that it would have been a better state if he had never been conceived. That the monstrous horror of what Judas is about to do has put him into a category where non-existence is preferable. The fearful fate that is awaiting this traitor makes a non-existence far, far 
better. That this, the paradox here is that between the Son of Man and this man. Right? The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written to him, but woe to that man by, the, by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It seems that what he's saying there is that Jesus knows that it's the will of the Father that he died. That he knows that he's the pastoral lamb. He knows that he's the sacrifice that will redeem all mankind. He knows that he will endure the wrath of the, of the, of the wrath of the Father. He knows that all sin will be placed upon him. He knows that the wrath of man will come against him in, in one, one to two days. He knows that what he, he knows of what his fate is. He knows it to such a point that he will agonize over it. He will beg God in some sense in his, in his humanity to take the cup away from him. He understands what's going to happen. And if a man looked in and saw that, you might say, woe to that man. Woe to Christ. Woe to a man who was born into this world and his fate ends there. But Mark writes, uh, Jesus says, that, 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 that woe is not to that man. Woe is not to the Son of Man. Woe is to this man. It is. It would have been. You might think that, that a man who lived a Christ life and, and culminated in his death from a human perspective, that it might be better if he had not been born again, so that he wouldn't have to endure the trials and tribulations and sufferings of mankind, the hatred and the vitriol of man, uh, literally to where all of the world is against him. Everyone has left him, and he is there alone. You, you might want to say, from a natural perspective, woe to that man that he had never been born. It would have been better. But Jesus redirects and says, No, I know of the uh, fate of myself. I know what the Father's plan is. I am in engaging in uh, the sufferings and the trials and the tribulations. From a, uh, This is the work that, that, that the Father gave me to do. And, and in some sense, it, it is not to be woe. There is no condemnation. There is nothing to lament here. That's what He's saying to His disciples. But this man, He's a different man. You know? It would been better if he had not been born. Because one might look at that man and say he's in a better state than the previous man. Right? But this man is a man who's prospering. This man is a man who, he's got a leg up. This man is a man who's climbing the political ladder. This is a man who will probably be uh, seated in the Sanhedrin. This is a man um, who, who knows what's best for him. This is a man who knows how to climb the proverbial ladder. He knows how to get what's done. And it seems like, like yeah, people will look at the two of us and think that, that, that Jesus Christ got the short end of the stick. But the reality is, is that this man and all of his prosperity, this man and all of his um, politics, this man and all of his worldly pursuits, this man, it, had been, it would have been uh, better had he not yet been born. Because of the fate that awaits this man. The fate that awaits the previous man, the, the Son of Man, Christ Himself, um, is, is, His life will contribute to His his fruitfulness, his exaltation, but this man, it will culminate in his his death. Sin will overtake him and overwhelm him to such an extent um, that, that it will crush his shoulders. And it had been better that this man not yet been born. But he had been born. He had been born though. And in that birth he had been a man of incredible privilege. J.C. Ryle writes, This passage shows the length of a man may go in the false profession of his faith. Matthew 10 uh, records Jesus as He commissions the twelve to go out and to preach the gospel to heal and to cast out demons. And you know where you find this man? You find him there. 
You find a man of great privilege. You find a man of great ministry. You find a man of of great accolades. You find a man that's um, different than even the average man. He seems like a good man. He seems like an outstanding man. He seems like a man who you would let carry the, 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 the box for the money in Never does it seem anywhere, in the, or never does the gospel give any indication that he was less than any of the other apostles externally. There in the gospel records, you, know, you don't find any indication that Judas uh, did not enter fully into the preaching of the kingdom of God, into the ministry of the saints, into the ministry of the, 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 the kingdom of repentance. Uh, you don't find anywhere that, 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 that it seems that he's not doing miracles and he's not casting out demons and he's not accomplishing great and mighty things from an external perspective. He fit right in. This is the terrifying aspect of the battle. If you read this passage, you meditate on it. I think this is what terrifies you. That he was a man of great privilege. He saw the mighty works of Christ. He, he saw, listen, he saw Jesus raise the dead. He saw Jesus raise Jairus' daughter. He saw Jesus raise the centurion's daughter. He saw Jesus raise Lazarus, who had been dead for three days. He saw Jesus cast out demons. He healed the sick. He saw the lame walk. No doubt he saw blind Bartimaeus see. No doubt he spoke to those who were formerly deaf and they heard his voice. He was there when the natural laws were suspended. He gathered up the baskets with the 5,000. He probably helped arrange them in companies of, on the grass. He, he, he probably went back to Christ time and time again thinking, that's got to be the end of the battle. And Jesus pulls out more fish and more, more bread. He heard the sweet teachings of Christ. He was there when Jesus called on the Sermon on the Mount. He heard sermon after sermon on the leaven of the Pharisees and the hypocrisy of the heart. He knew that it wasn't... Uh, he knew that it wasn't what went into a man that defiled him, but what came out. He knew that the heart was a problem. He had probably heard Christ say it dozens of times. He knew the issue wasn't murder, but it was hatred in his heart that he would fall to it. He heard sermons such like, I'm the only way, the truth, and the life. He heard, I'm the bread of life. He heard, I'm the light of the world. He heard him testify of his messiahship with his words as well as his works. If someone would have asked him, is he the messiah? We would all well expect him to say, Thou hast well said it. I mean, what have I been doing for the last three years of my life? He was in every way associated with the other eleven, accepted by them, taken in. There doesn't seem to be any reasonable conclusion that he was the culprit that night. The snake in the room. He was accepted to the point that he was trusted with the money. When he made objections such as he did earlier in the text with Mary concerning the waste of the alabaster box, uh, he made reasonable objections and they all thought, oh yeah, he makes a good point. Maybe he's right. They put faith, they put stock, they put something into this man that, that um, and, they, and they were right to do it, I think. In some sense, right? Even as he left that night, they didn't suspect the thing. The gospel writers tell us that they thought he, uh, that they thought Judas left to go buy more bread. Yet it turned out that he was a child of his father, the devil. He departs from the faith. He assists our Lord's most blatant enemies in the great act of causing treason in this world of devastation. The murder of our Lord and thus earning a place in history with men like Cain and Ahithophel. Never was there such a fall. Never was there such apostasy. Never was there such a miserable end to such a sound 
beginning. Here we find the man who came into the world with a mother and father, insofar as we can tell, that were faithful, naming their child praise. The praise of God. Hoping that he would follow in the patriarch's footsteps and be remembered for his resolve and commitment to the God of Israel. Yet that man grows up and the son of man says, It'd be better if he hadn't been born. One commentator says, Here again is a paradox. The Son of Man will go, be betrayed by a close friend in fulfillment of prophetic scripture, and yet his false follower is fully capable of the act, and not escape individual responsibility for what he does. Such an enigma cannot be solved in human terms. That doesn't mean it can't be solved in higher terms. The disciples are not necessarily called to the solution of this theological problem. Instead, they're called to solemn, heart-searching. In verse 19, is it I? That part of what we'll have a tendency to do as a congregation is to walk away with a theological problem and try to fix it. Well, we have a theological bent here. And we'll want to seek to reconcile things like God's divine sovereignty and human responsibility. If God determined His Son to die prior even to the existence of Judas, and it was said in the eternal decree such that it was unchanging as His character, predetermined Acts chapter 3 and 4, um, as it was, then is Judas responsible at all? Of course He's responsible. I'll go ahead and say that for you. See, how does that work out? I'm not 100% sure. But he didn't force Judas to do it. He didn't make Judas to do it. That's not the point either. Right? The point is not for you to walk away with a theological uh, discussion today thinking, uh, how in the world do we reconcile these two things? As the commentator said, there are some things that are too high for us, but it doesn't mean that they're too high for God. He's working all that out. What we do know is that Judas was responsible, that Judas made the choice, that Judas put the dagger in the back. Judas um, was the culprit of Judas... As a result of that, it had been better had he not yet been born. But that's not really the point. If you miss it, if that's what you take away from the sermon, we miss the whole point. The point of the passage as left for us is not to get lost in the questions too high for us, but to pick up the things that are meant for us. But this should lead us not to examine God or to put Him on the bar of examination. Not even to judge Judas. Or the disciples. But to examine ourselves. This should provoke in us a wholesome self-examination in the application. We're not to quarrel with God and what He does. But we are to receive the Word of God as meant for us. So, how does it apply? What can we learn from this passage of Scripture? First of all, we can learn that it is the love of sin and darkness that calls men to reject God. John 3.19 says, and This is the condemnation that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. That what you find in here is not only a love for Christ and Mary, the son named a woman, but you find a, a hatred, an envy, a jealousy, an insubordination to the authority of God by men such as the priests. 
Their rejection was open. Their hostility was blatant. They weren't afraid of it. They're, 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 are, are the, they are the people that later the apostles will apply in Psalm chapter number 2, um, in Acts chapter number 3 and 4, that says that, that, that we will not have this man rule over us. They will conspire. The nations will rage against him. They will conspire against him. And the priests and the chiefs, they gather together and they hate the Christ. And they do it openly and they do it blatantly. And in some sense, you'll find a man in their corner, yet he's not quite the same. His scene is not open, it is not blatant, it is in secret. It's Judas, it was greed in his heart. Because his sin was so secret, his rejection of Christ was so deceptive. He was among them. He loved money more than he loved Christ. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're, maybe you're like the priest, the chief priest. Maybe you're listening, sermon audio, maybe you're listening by the way of Facebook, maybe, maybe you're one of those that just blatantly disregards Christ. You would never come to church on your own. The only reason you're here in church service is to appease your family or your friends to keep the peace. It's, it's not out of a love and a devotion to Christ or to God, but to them. And in some ways that's admirable. But the reality is, is that there's a hostility and a rejection of Christ, not only in your heart, but in the public square. And it doesn't, doesn't hurt your feelings to let people know that you will not submit to Christ because He's not real, or at least He's not God. And all of the, the silliness of religion is, bane, is a bane upon the 21st century existence. But it serves a purpose, but that purpose is quickly waning. Listen, you may see it as some virtue or something to gloat of that is... Your boldness and your resolve to reject Christ, but the reality is, is that your sin is open and it's hostile to God, and He sees every bit of it clearly. And because of you, and because, and it's because you love your sin, um, whatever that may be. But I probably guess that's not most of us. Do. I'd say that if we are comprised of any of these two groups, it would be more like the latter, Judas. Those with the secret sins of the heart which they love, they keep them from sacrificing at all and coming to the Savior. Your name is praised this morning, and your heart is deceived. Your rejection of Christ is not open, it's not blatant, it's not hostile like the chief priest, but it's secret, it's subtle, it's internal, but it's rejection nonetheless. You're one of us. You're one of them, but you're not. You are in word, but you're not in me. There's something keeping you from him. There's something holding us back. It's hard, and if it wasn't for that one thing, that one love, that one sin, I'd give my life to Christ. I'd follow him wherever. I mean, I mean, but, and then it almost turns to bitterness. I mean, if he really loved me, would he ask me to give that up? Now, wouldn't he simply love me for who I am? That's your only sin is not simply lust. It's not simply greed. It's not simply anger. Our greatest sin at that point is not loving God. Do you see? When we, we, we harp on so many different types of sins, but the great tragedy of all that sin is not inherently that sin. It's the reality that we would cling to that thing and love it more than we love Christ. 
The unwillingness to cut off hands, to gouge out eyes, to kill sin, and simply let it alone should be a startling and awakening reality in your life at that point. Because the reality is, is that you love the sin more than you love Christ. And never does sin ever live alone. It causes you to anger, it causes you to bitterness, it causes you to anxiety, it causes you to guilt, because you know you're one of the twelve. You know when you begin to hate God because of it, for making you like this, for giving you those desires, for not allowing you to love two masters. And you begin down a pattern just like Judah. We learn from Judas not only that, that, that it's the love of sin that causes us to reject Christ, but where sin begins small, it grows. Because that same person will say, I can contain it, I can control it. Um, and the reality is that you're a fool. You cannot. Judas could not. In the security of the twelve, in the security of the Son of God, in the ministry of the saints, he could not contain it. You read John chapter 12 and verse number 6, you find out that, that he had kept the bunks. And one of the reasons he wanted the ministry of the, of the bunks was so that he could occasionally take out as he needed. That he was a thief at heart. Matthew tells us that, that Judas, uh, John chapter number 18 tells us that whenever the, the, the disciples come out and, and they come to seize the Christ, that Judas was standing with them. That Matthew tells us that as Judas walked up, that Judas walked up while Christ was in the garden and kissed him on the cheek. The gesture that he had probably done hundreds of times, a sign of, a sign of affection and greeting and friends. And you know what? I don't doubt that in some sense he even loved Christ or cared for Christ. I don't doubt that they were friends in some sense, comrades, laborers together. So what would make Judas do such a thing? Greed in his heart. The lust of the heart that drives a man to betray a brother is clearly a display of a love for money that's greater than a love for a brother. That's the sin. He would not love Christ. In this sense, it is true to say that, that Judas is a clearly a Christ hater. It seems clear. But if this is about the sixth self-examination, then what about us? Is it too an act of hatred to love something greater than Christ? Is it an act of cosmic treason to pursue sin instead of Christ? To cling to lust instead of clinging to Christ? Are we quick to say, I love Christ, but I also love this thing, and I'm unwilling to get it? Are we deceiving ourselves in thinking that, that we can serve two masters, that we can serve God and man, that we can have our cake and eat it too, that we can have both? that's the case, can we say that we truly love Christ? Is it not an act of hatred to choose something greater and above Christ, to place anything before Him? Thus, isn't it an act of love to destroy that thing simply for Christ's sake? Is not then the intentional destruction of sin, the mortification of sin, the murdering of sin, the cutting off of hands, the gouging out of eyes, is it not an act of love for Christ? Thus, the question is, do we love Christ? And is that evident by the way that we handle the sin of our lives? Because listen to me, young people. Listen to me, older people. Listen to me, church. 
You cannot play the sin in your life and think that you can contain it. Judas <coughs> is proof of that. Greed that led to thievery, that led to bitterness, that led to anger, that led to betrayal, that fueled his deception and culminated in binding arms and collaborating with the enemies of Christ controlled by Satan culminates in guilt and shame that eventually will kill him. He meets his own demise. That's what happened. That we learn that, that Judas did it because he loved his sin, his greed greater than Christ. He had to choose that day and he chose Christ. The uncontained, unmortified sin cultivated in his heart a greater anger and bitterness for even his brethren, such that he was willing to sacrifice the Son of God for what he desired. Then he recognizes that that wasn't what he wanted at all. He takes the silver back, 30 pieces of prophesied, and he throws it down because he recognized what he had done. And then he goes and hangs himself. And that's exactly what we're doing ourselves. If it's not sacrifice for the cause of Christ, you are not more powerful, you are not stronger, you are not intellectual enough, you're not skillful enough to play with it. It will kill you. This is what Judas teaches That he loved it more than he loved Christ. He could not contain it. And it ruled him even to this day. We learn too that great gifts do not secure or exhibit true grace in our hearers. We learn that great privilege is not a, a 100% certain um, evidence that the grace of God is in your life. You know? Matthew 7, you know that great verse? Um, that, 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 that verse that carries great weight with it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. And some will come to me and say, I cast out demons in your name. I prophesied in your name. I did all these things in your name. Judas heard that. Judas was that. As far as I can tell, Judas did all those things. And we look at people and we look at ourselves. You know? You could preach like George Whitfield. You could pray like George Mueller. You could evangelize like Charles Spurgeon. You could have the devotion of men like, uh, to the Word of God like Tyndale. You could do mighty works, build schools, care for orphans, nurture the sick, pastor a church, and, and that doesn't secure the true grace of God in your heart. It could all simply be an expression of the sin of your heart. That his ministry, Judas's ministry, was a ministry, no doubt, that was fueled by his own lust of his heart. And thus he served himself by, by supposedly serving God. <clears throat> that Judas stands as a memorial today that grace gifts don't prove much of anything. And that today, if you're resting on a, 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 a human experience or, 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 or what you think is a special gifting or a mighty ministry or a natural endowment or a human experience, my friends, you're building your life on sinking sand. The reality is, is that Judas Iscariot could probably preach better than any of us. He could evangelize better than any of us. He ministered more consistently for three and a half years than any of us. And the reality is that for three and a half years, he propagated the kingdom in some fashion. And at the end, he, he, he met his demise by his own sin. 
There are some things that are more important than external gifts and human endowments or human experience. And it's the fruit of the grace of God. It's a holiness of heart. It's a righteousness of character. It's a genuine love and a loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ that most often expresses itself in not in a lavish lifestyle of Christian ministry above and beyond other people, but in a life of sacrifice and selflessness to one another quickly to be forgotten, thus that Christ may be remembered. And I know that this is a real danger for us because I've been guilty of it in the past. Seeing so many Christians fall prey to it, just in my relative short time as a Christian, it has amazed me how many men have fallen. How many great men have fallen in ministry. I can think of one now that just comes to mind rushing. And I can think about the great tragedy of all the men and women who have put their faith in that man, thus their faith is shattered. Experientially, it's also dangerous because when the status quo changes, you'll begin to doubt your salvation of God's favor. It's functionally, it's practically a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. You'll forget whenever you start to think that my human devotion, that my human experience, and that my human giftings and God's blessing upon my life um, is contingent or, 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 or relative to how faithful I am or, or over my salvation, you'll, you'll quickly begin to falter. You'll enter into depression and discouragement and anger and bitterness. Um, why? Because you'll wonder where God is at. You'll think that His grace is nullified. I've been faithful today. I don't know why I don't have more. You'll forget that the grace of God and seemingly absent is still present when you have Christ. <clears throat> You'll forget that if God places you in a dungeon for the next decade with three meals a week and you're wondering how in the world you're surviving, that if, that if, you, that, that if you have Christ, you're still far blessed than, than this man. It would have been better for him that he had not been born but you, not you. Why? Because you still have Christ. You'd be in a far better state than Judas with 30 pieces of silver and a seemingly prominent future or if, if you're in a dungeon for, 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 for a decade with Christ. And that sometimes, that's exactly what your life will be, it should be. Why? So that He may be exalted. That great privileges and great experiences don't secure grace, the grace of God and salvation in our lives. That you may be raised in the most faithful Christian home. You may have the greatest mother and father. You may be named praise. Being a part of a, a great Christian Bible preaching church or living in a blessed land where the gospel has been preached for, for centuries. It doesn't guarantee that you're in the family of God. Do you understand that you'd be hard-pressed to find a man with more privilege and a better place to know God than Judas Iscariot? And today he lies restless and torments and agony. But if you're going to thank your salvation on the privileges that you have, the home you grew up in, the faith of your parents, the gifts that you have, the sermons that you've preached, the ministry that you've been engaged in, you're a fool. Because Judas would do it better than all of us. Remorse doesn't even secure a true grace in your heart. Matthew tells us that he repented himself, threw down 30 pieces of silver after he understood what he did to the Son of God, and he went and hanged himself. The scriptures are clear. He was eaten up with guilt. But instead of running where he should have to Christ, he ran to the Pharisees to make it right, and they couldn't make it right for him. They said, the blood is not on our hands. And I know what you think. Judas is the worst of the worst. You know? He'd been there. <laughs> but that's not the case at all. You know? 
It's not like he'd been planning a coup since prior to day one. You know, and he finagled his way into the twelve with someone, you know, conniving as like they would connive a, a jury selection so that he could he could he could change the the, the raft of things. Uh, he was a man chosen by Christ who followed him, and through the course of ministry began to hate Christ because he could not fulfill what was in his heart, and thus it moved him on this progression of sinfulness that culminated in his own death and demise. And there have been men that have followed in his pattern day in and day out. And they ended in remorse. They knew they were wrong. They were moral in their being. They had the image impressed upon their heart, yet they would not run to Christ. Judas stands as a reminder that all the accolades, rewards, and human experiences of this life will guarantee no eternal inheritance. He stands as a reminder that we must examine ourselves. Again, this is, let me, 1 Corinthians 16, Paul encourages to examine ourselves. Peter, in one of his epistles, his brethren, be diligent to make a calling and election sure. Self-examination is healthy. There are many within the church and they are betraying Jesus daily for far less than 30 pieces of silver. And yet we think that because we're upstanding citizens who obey the law and are members in good standing, the towed around Bibles that we're fine. Over and over again throughout the Scriptures, Paul, Peter, Jesus is encouraging us to examine ourselves. And not to cause us to doubt our salvation, but to push us on to Christ. This is not troublesome today for the believer. This is a good thing for his good, for our good, for his glory. For us to, 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 to examine ourselves and to question, Lord, is it I? Am I capable of this? Would I do that? Would I? It, it provokes us on to Christ. That's exactly what it did with the other eleven. It pushed them on to Him. It caused them to examine themselves, to, to, to question whether they were in the faith and why they were doing what they were doing and whether it was possible for them at all. But self-examination is not something this morning. You may walk away and say, he's, 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 he's urging all of us to question whether we're in the faith at all or not. I'm not. I don't want anybody to walk away down and that's what I'm preaching. I want all of us this morning to walk away knowing where we stand with God. Because if not, we'll walk away like Judas, deceived thinking we're fine when we're not cleaning the ministry for the wrong reasons. I don't think that necessarily that he was in it for the wrong reasons for the entire time. But as time went on, the fruit of Judas became a reality and it consumed him. But the goal this morning is not to have a group of uh, people under the sound of my voice walk away, every one of us wondering whether we're saved or not. The, the, the hope is, is that every one of us would walk away knowing that, that we have Christ or we don't. That we would run to Him. Every single one of us. Clinging not to things of this life, not to our accolades or human experiences, uh, not to, to privileges that we have, but clinging to Christ. That's the difference. The other eleven, they had Christ. I mean, think about Peter. Peter was not much better of a follower than Judas was. As far as I can tell, Judas was better. You know, there's more uh, negative things said about Peter throughout the life of Christ than Judas. And he denies our Lord at his crucifixion three times. What's the difference? Not that Peter was a better Christian, but that Peter had godly repentance that led to life, and Judas had worldly sorrow that led to death. Judas runs to the Pharisees. Peter runs to Christ. And that's the, that's the message this morning. Men, women, church, children, run to Christ. Be like, don't be like Judas. Don't be like the chief priests. 
Be like Mary, who simply brought what she had with an act of worship, not to be seen, the total self-sacrifice and self-denial, simply because she loved Christ. See, I didn't, uh, that hymn that I read this morning, I read all the verses, but I didn't read the refrain. The chorus after every verse goes like this. Oh, come today, do not delay. Too late, it soon will be. To Jesus fly for mercy cry. He waits to welcome thee. You know what? Had Judas came, it would have been better that he had been born. But because he wouldn't, a fate awaits him that this world can never exalt in words. But at the same time, Mary, and I pray you and I will have a faith as well in which words cannot exalt, in which we glory in the Savior for eternity. Not because of what we've brought, but simply because He came and we're resting in that. That's really what Christmas is all about. Jesus, King of Kings, glory of glory, King of all that is in earth, enters into the world to say sinners. Just like us. And the danger is, is that you'll walk away and say, Judas, I'll never be like that. And the reality is, is they're feeling churches in the world today. And maybe a better question is, is it I, Lord? Is it I? If you thought about three people today that if you should have heard that sermon, you didn't do it wrong. Because it was for us. It's for me. I plagued myself with that question all week. Maybe, maybe all my life. Is it I, Lord? Is it I? Recognizing that had I been there, I may have been one holding the torch that wasn't for the grace of God. And today, if you came, you came not on your accolades, not on your rewards, not on your experience, not on your skills. You came simply on the, by the grace of God. Oh, come today, do not delay, too late it will, soon it will be. To Jesus, fly for mercy cry, he waits to welcome thee. Peter listened to those words in some sense. Judas did. did. Will you? Let's pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you. For the glories of Christ. Father, a solemn sermon. What a sobering thought. Harder. Harder to keep going. Hard to preach. Hard to live. Father, we pray that it's. Um, Honor you this morning that some way you were pleased with it. Father, I don't, you told us about him for a reason. Is that reason not, Father, um, what that reason is, it's not always that clear to me. But I do understand, Father, that you left them for our example. That we would not follow in that path. We would not fall for our demise, Father, and loving sin more than we love Christ. Father, he stands as a quintessential betrayer of all human history. But at the same time, Father, I recognize before Christ I was not much different. 
And that had it not been for the grace of Christ, I would have shared the same hell. But help me not to be quickly to judge others before I first judge myself. Help me to remove the plank out of my own eye before I judge even the speck in my brother. Father, help me to ask the question quicker, is it I versus is it them? Father, recognizing that I'm the problem. Father, that when offense comes, it's all in me. Father, help me to rest not in my own accolades, my own strength. Father, help, me, help that not, Father. Father, help me not to despair over that, though. Father, help me to rest in Christ. Help me to look to Him, Father. Help me not to to um, to um, roll around and wallow in my sorrow, Father, because such a worm is I. I'm not anymore. I'm not. And I'm not because of Christ. Father, so help me revel in the glories of Christ. Father, help me not to uh, be judgmental in the sense of saying, thank God I'm not a sinner like the Pharisees. I'm not a sinner like Judas. Father, help me revel in the fact that I'm not a sinner because of Christ. Help me to glory in Him today that I am not what I was, Father. And I am not what I would be, but I am what I am by the grace of God. Father, help me to believe that. Help me to love that. Help me to glory in that, Father, for Christ's sake. And may all the world know um, that if any of us get in, all because of Christ. May that be our testimony, Father. May that be our motto. May that be our song. In Jesus' name, amen.